Welcome back to the E4Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and today we have Alan Lynchman, who is a uh, one of the head professors at American, I believe. Yes. Right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Alan, and then you know we'll dive into some other things. I'm distinguished professor of history at American University in Washington, D.C. I grew up on uh, the hard scrabble streets of Brooklyn, nice. where I learned to run and fight. <laughs> but I much preferred to run. So I became a college runner at Brandeis and continued my running experience uh, after school. And uh, I was an age group North American champion in the 3000 meter steeplechase, <laughs> a race designed for horses, but uh, occasionally run by very foolish people like myself. So I was undergraduate at Brandeis got my PhD at Harvard University. I hate to say it in 1973 when I was not <laughs> in American history with a specialty in politics and the quantitative analysis of uh, historical information. And I've been at American University uh, ever since then, although I did spend a year at the California Institute of Technology in 1981, where I developed uh, what became my keys to the White House system, developed it in collaboration with a, we were a very odd couple, the ledger Kylis Borak from Moscow, the world's leading authority in earthquake prediction, but we can tell you that wow. story. I also figured, you know, I'm a young man near Hollywood, coming from the East Coast. Uh, what do you do? You go on a quiz show. So I went on a tic-tac-toe with Wink Martindale and defeated 20 opponents, won over $100,000 in cash and prizes. What? True story. It's not great though, until I tell you all my hassles with the IRS, but I was the big quiz show money winner. Wow. In 1981, I actually had fan clubs. Unfortunately, it was like junior high school girls and you know. Oh my God. <laughs> that is crazy. Whoa. It was crazy. For a while I was a real. Holy shit. The other so, thing I've done wow. is an expert witness get this in some 100 civil rights cases, all the big cases in Texas, uh, North Carolina, Florida, uh, Wisconsin, California, you name it. Yeah. And uh, I've written 11 or 12 books, depending on how you count, uh, some of them co-authored and they range across a wide spectrum of US history. My most recent books, one that got a lot of attention, of course, was the case for impeachment. Yes. I deal with non-controversial topics. My next book was uh, The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present. Mm -hmm. And then my least controversial book, uh, Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. That, that's sarca that was sarcasm, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> most recently, the seventh edition of my book on the keys to the White House, My Prediction System, has come out predicting the next president. The Keys to the White House, 2020. I have two children, yes. uh, very different. My daughter is a psychiatrist in my hometown of Brooklyn. But I gotta tell you, she lives in Williamsburg. Williamsburg today is not the Williamsburg when I grew up in the 1950s. I lived in Brooklyn for four years. So you know. I, yeah, no, and I, I didn't live it in the 50s, but I lived it in like 2014, 15, up until like six, 17 or something like that. And it oh, was how gentrified it had become. It's I was in Bed-Stuy. I lived in Bed-Stuy. 
amazing. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, I would have people tell me like, listen, 10 years ago, you couldn't walk down the street. Oh, no. you, me, it, you know, I was like taken back by it. It was very interesting, but yeah, I grew up in Brownsville actually. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very tough neighborhood. Uh, but I loved it. I actually went to Stuyvesant high school. I had to take the subway for an hour Ugh. Every, every day. So my son is a, uh, Master's in Fine Arts graduate from uh, Emerson College, nice. Dean Scholar, filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker. Nice. And I have a very interesting wife. <laughs> My wife is Karen Strickler, one of the nation's leading uh, grassroots political organizers. She headed Maryland NARAL in Maryland when they codified Roe versus Wade back in the 90s. So no matter wow. what the Supreme Court does, the women of Maryland is protected today. She heads a uh, Vote Climate Pack US, which is devoted to fighting climate change. Sure. She's also a six foot blonde Ironman triathlete. <laughs> the Ironman triathlon is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a 26.2 mile run. Good God. And I'm a five foot six Jewish boy from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Complete opposites. That's amazing. That's cool, that's man. Thumbnail, very thumbnail sketch of who I am. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was detailed. And I, I appreciate that because that way people can kind of, you know, see you for not just the books you write and the fact that you're a professor, but other things that you're an actual human being and you have family and you, and you yeah. won a lot of money on a game show. Speaking of, you're talking to another game host, our, our game contestant. I was on The Price is Right with Bob Barker and won a car. So, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Bob's my boy. So anyway, so yeah, it was. I don't have any fan clubs, though. All my fan clubs would have been probably 80 years old and up. But, you know, <laughs> I'll take what well, I I was get. much younger when I was on That's the true. show. Yeah. All right, cool. So um, definitely want to talk about your books for sure. Um, I think we'll end probably with kind of like what your prediction is. If You've come out with your prediction already, right? Yes, my prediction is out. Uh, yeah. Again, exclusive to New York Times. I don't know if you saw the video. I didn't worth. on purpose. I don't like to know it's a lot. A good of, idea. But yeah. You can check it out when we're done. It's on YouTube. Yeah, definitely. So you know, and if you want to give me a little synopsis of like what you think is going to happen, and I'll I'll give you my prediction first, and you'll see if I'm if I'm close or not. But um, I kind of wanted to talk about you know what caught my eye with you was your latest book was Repeal the Second Amendment, which was I found interesting. Um, I haven't been able to read it yet, but I, I did some like, uh, cause on Amazon they have like quick looks and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was like reading into that and stuff like that, but I was just so blown away. Cause I have a lot of people that I talk to on the podcast left, right. I mean, I talked to like a friend of mine who's one of Clinton's executives, um, executive assistants when he was in the white house. I talked to Gary Byrne who, I don't know if you've heard him before, but super right wing, like whatever. Right. And I talked to everyone cause I'm, I'm very neutral just off the bat. I have always voted Democrat. I've always been left wing, but I, I find as I've gotten older, certain things that fit my lifestyle that, you know, certain things that are important to me that I never realized as I got older have changed a little bit, I think. Um, and I think the media plays a lot into that, but I was just curious of like what your kind of stance is on a lot of these topics that are so, so controversial. Yeah. And hard to have a conversation with because I don't think both sides really know what they're talking. I think the right has a hard time with the left not using the right terms and understanding what things really mean and, and vice versa, you know, and the left really just wanting to kind of like solve it simply. And it's, it's not. I can talk about that book a little bit, but I just want to make one aside. We can talk about it later. Sure. Okay. Great friends with someone you would never expect. You know, I'm a 
pretty liberal Jewish guy yeah. in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, you're pretty liberal, yeah. But I, I, I developed a friendship with other than Lee Atwater. I don't know if you know who Lee really? Atwater is. He was Karl Rove before there was a Karl Rove, and Karl Rove was kindergarten compared to sure. Lee Atwater. He was political director of the Reagan White House. Yeah. Any rate, I was inspired to write this book by an op-ed by the late great justice John Paul Stevens, mm -hmm. who wrote an op-ed on why we need to repeal the Second Amendment. I really hadn't thought about it until I was inspired by Justice Stevens. And then I began to look into it. And the first thing that struck me was, if you believe the NRA and the gun lobby, we should be essentially the safest country among peer nations by far, because we have all these guns for self-defense. And then when I looked at it, you know, I'm a quantitative historian, so I do math. And uh, I did an analysis of a comparison between uh, gun deaths in the US and those in our closest peer nations, the G7 group of nations, the other major industrial democracies, no Russia and Australia. And what I found was gun, gun murders, in the US per capita, adjusting for population, were more than 20 times greater than in the G7 group of nations plus Australia. Not 20%, but 20 times greater. That we uniquely stand out, not just for gun murders, but also gun suicides. People don't realize there are many more gun suicides per year in the US, about 23,000, sure. then there are gun murders, about 15,000. Well, we're seven times more likely per capita to have gun suicides, but 40% less likely to have suicides by any other means. And then I look back at the origins. You know, conservatives always talk about the origins of the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. And I found that the conservative, or at least the gun lobby version of the Second Amendment just doesn't hold up. There is not a single person, not one, involved in drafting, passing, or ratifying the Second Amendment that ever said this amendment guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms as opposed to a collective right to maintain a well-regulated militia. Sure. And contrary to the notion that the Second Amendment was designed to arm ordinary citizens to rise up against their government, quite the opposite. The Second Amendment was used to arm the militia. And under George Washington and uh, John Adams, used to put down uprisings like Freeze Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion. But the clincher for me was this. Who framed the Second Amendment? James Madison, yeah. slaveholder. Second Amendment wouldn't have gone anywhere without the support of the slave states. Do you think for one brief second, James Madison and all of those other slaveholders would have voted for an amendment that gave a right to bear arms to black people? Yeah, no, definitely not. Not a chance, but guess what? Guess who doesn't serve in the militia? Black people. Mm -hmm. They don't serve in the militia until the Civil War. So by tying it to the well-regulated militia, you put arms in the hands of the slave patrollers, sure. but not 
to flee, free, even free black. Not free, so yeah, you know, that yeah. makes sense. And, that, yeah. and then I looked at, you know, many, many other things. You know, the NRA is now being sued. Oh, really? New York, because it's misusing its funds. It's paying huge salaries and lavish trips and wardrobes to its executives while stiffing its lower level employees. Well, I have a whole chapter about how the NRA has since become a racket. But that's what that book is all about. The other thing I point out is, you know, some of my best friends said I shouldn't write this book because it just gives ammunition to the gun lobby. You know, you want to take away our guns. Repealing the Second Amendment doesn't mean taking away your guns. The amendment never interpreted as an individual right to bear arms until the Heller case in 2010. Talking about, you know, 200 years. Yeah, 200, yeah, a long time. Nobody took away anyone and confiscate guns. Yeah, it wasn't like Australia, like the buyback and stuff like that. Yeah, on, on the side of gun control, your movement has gone nowhere. It's gone backwards. We've repealed the uh, assault weapons ban. We've passed nothing at the national level since the Clinton administration. We passed the uh, kind of exemption for gun manufacturers and gun sellers to be sued. The game needs to be changed. You can't keep using your old slogan of, we support the Second Amendment, but it doesn't work. So that's my argument. No, no, those are all good points. I just, I wanted to know, like, as far as like, to your first point of like the the numbers, right? Like the G7 and stuff like that. Do you think possibly it could be because of like the populations of us where we have 320 million and some other, I mean, Pennsylvania is the size of, or bigger than most countries in the world. So would that, do you think, I don't know. I'm literally asking, I don't know. No, first of all, okay. combined, those countries are much larger. But Japan's sure. a very big country. Yeah, yeah with a lot of people. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people in yeah. Japan, Germany. So we're not talking. Yeah, there are you know so, these are for the most part pretty large nations. Yeah, yeah, Canada or Australia are there, but you're talking about Japan, Germany, France, Italy, very substantial nations. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just didn't. And also, know. control. You know, the gun controllers say, well, it's bad video games or mental health. I, I control them. All these countries have mental health problems, some sure. even more than the U.S. I agree. They all have violent video games. You know, Japan's kind of the home of video games. Yeah. You know how many gun murders there were in Japan in the last reporting period? Three. Three compared to 15,000 in the U.S., which has about three times the population. So per capita, that's nine versus 15,000. Do they have guns? In, are they allowed to have guns? In Japan? They have a credibly strict yeah, they're pretty part. strict with that. Yeah, they're probably the strictest in the world. But you know, other countries aren't as extreme. But as I said, on average, per capita, we're more than twenty times more likely. An American is twenty times more likely to be murdered by a gun. Yeah. Seven times more likely to have suicide committed by guns. Yeah. And by the way, gun suicides are fundamentally different from you know things like slashing or poisoning. The vast majority of those suicides don't succeed. Uh, yeah, it's a funny word to use. But yeah, I mean, yeah. the person survived, 90% of those using guns don't Do. survive. And guns take no premeditation. You got a gun in the house, you can commit suicide in three seconds. Yeah, I've had a, quite a few friends do commit suicide in multiple ways. And I mean, none of them lived, obviously, but like it was, it, it's definitely, you know, I think about that a lot as far as the gun That's, suicide versus yeah. the 
you know, the murder and stuff like that. Now, do you think that like the fact that like, yes, we're three times larger than Japan and stuff like that, they have strict gun laws, but do you think that like, cause we have 400 million guns, we have 320 million people. It's obvious that our, our numbers are going to be higher than everyone else. And it's especially the way that Americans are in general, where we're very American, we're very like the stick to our roots and stuff like that. The second amendment, I think personally, as of late, the constitution and some things that we have has showed its age. Um, personally, um, I think it's some, I think it is time to kind of refine some things, but I'm glad to hear you say though, because I to tell you what, when I read the cover of your book, I was like, all right, he's going to want to like get rid of every, they're going to come for my guns and blah, blah, blah. And Hell no. I know. I'm yeah. talking about things like assault weapons, bans, universal sure, sure. background checks, permits, things that would sure. be opened up. You know, we just had the liberal ninth circuit, because of the Second Amendment, invalidate a ban on high-caliber magazines. Who the, in the world needs a 30 caliber magazine? The only thing that's designed for is mass killing. 30-round mag, you mean? Yeah, 30-round yeah, yeah. magazine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and that, that brings me to my next point, though, to where I think everything you're saying, obviously, you're a stats person, you have all the analytical things. I think that having the conversation and knowing what we're all talking about, because personally, Listen, I didn't even get in. I'm not like a huge gun guy, just so you know. I just got into it actually about a year and a half ago. I moved to North Carolina. Go figure. Um, and <laughs> and uh, I was like, me and my girlfriend were like, you know what? For Fourth of July, let's just do something different. So we went to this gun range. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, all right, we're going to go on there. It's going to be a bunch of gun-toting rednecks. And we're like, listen here, y- Yankee, you know, because I'm a, a northern guy compared to North Carolina. And, you know, it was the complete opposite experiences I had. I was blown away with the knowledge, the, the way that they took care of the safety and everything. And it changed my perspective on what I thought those people were like. Because um, that's all I see on the media is yeah. everybody saying the capital. You know? Let me follow that up with two things. Sure. One, gun owners support things like universal background assault weapon. It's the gun lobby, which is in cahoots with exactly with the gun manufacturers and pays its CEO well over a million dollars plus yes. all these perks. Yes, I agree with you on that. Hundred percent. So, you know, I, I, I and a lot of the gun owners are now very unhappy with the gun lobby in the NRA. Yeah, no, I I can, I can totally see that. And I think that those big tabloids and those big taglines of we're going to take your guns and this and that, that's really what kind of scares people. But I think you are right when it comes to that, where as a gun owner, I want people to be, I, it terrifies me when I saw it, when COVID happened and all these people that didn't like guns went and started buying guns because they wanted to protect themselves all of a sudden. I was worried because I'm like, I'm actually glad like California has a seven day or 10 day buying period. Like I wish they had you had to take a class and shoot that gun before you buy it. Cause I don't, I don't want you to just buy a New gun. Requires that. For yeah, New York state does. There's a bunch of States, but, but you know what I mean? Like as a gun owner, I feel safer if other gun owners are trained at the very least to kind of handle that in a certain situation versus let me just go buy some guns. And then if I ever have to use it, I'm going to kill someone else and not even defend myself. couple of points. One, sure. having a gun in the house, you know, precisely because of the kinds of things you're talking about, doesn't make you safer. You're more likely to uh, commit violence or suicide than you are to protect yourself from someone, you know, breaking into your house. The other thing is 
one other thing my research uncovered, I looked at every single identifiable murder in the United States. And here's what I found. Taking out, you know, gang warfare and drug warfare, just looking at ordinary citizens, you are most likely to be killed by someone you know, not by some, you know, crazy Random. criminal breaking into your house. And the vast majorities of, of murders come out of arguments where people get yeah, domestic disputes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, too. And I think that's a valid point as well, aside, you know, but also at the same time, like, I feel like if I am trained to do something, if I'm in the right mental state, that's why I think the mental health of a lot of these things, because let's be honest, these mass shooters, these people, these criminals, whoever's going to commit a crime, isn't a, a school. Oh, this is a gun free school zone. Okay. <laughs> and you know what I mean? They're not going to say, well, I couldn't get this gun because most of these school shootings are, 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 uh, some of them have been bought, but most of them are stolen from family members and other things that they go and then use on these schools. So like, how can we save a school without having some sort of like, you know, a border there as far as like a, a law enforcement officer or somebody or, or even armed teach? I'm not saying the armed teachers. I'm just saying like that oh was, brought, I know, yeah. I know that was brought up though. That's a, that's a thing. Yeah. But Look, you know what I mean? someone comes spewing in sure. with a, 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 an assault weapon. With an AR, yeah. A 50 yeah. round magazine. I don't care who's there. You're not going to stop it. You've got to keep these guns out of the hands of those kinds of persons. And in many cases, the family members shouldn't have had the guns either. In general. They were properly vetted, properly trained. That's true. I agree with that too. A lot of, uh, when you look back on like the, um, what's his name? The kid in Connecticut, when you, the, the one he, he stole his guns from his mom. His mom was, was yeah. mentally, exactly. yeah. Like she wasn't, how did she get those guns? And I think. The thing is, you can kill a dozen people in less than a minute with one yeah. of those guns because they, you know, they, they can fire 40 rounds in a minute. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm not trying to talk about guns all the time. I was just curious. Right, we got a lot of other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so tell me about like the, uh, uh, you know, I see you tweeting a lot and this and that about Trump. So as far as like how he won in 2016, do you kind of see, the same kind of formula that he's using in 2020 against Biden and Camilla. Cause I think personally that this is probably the biggest vice president pick uh, in a very long time, I think um, because Biden is, you know, uh Oh, did I lose you? Uh, no, you're still there. I hear you. It's all good. Um, yeah, right. Someone's calling in. I'm going to decline it. <laughs> all right. We're okay. You're good. Um, so, so I think, Picking a, a good vice was important for Biden because whether he's going to make a second term or even make a first term, you know, I think the second or the vice the vice president is was it was a should have been a strong pick. I don't know about Kamala Harris because I mean I think it's odd that like she was calling him a racist during the debates and now they're best buddies. But do you yeah. think that them picking Kamala is going to give Trump even more ammunition? Do you think? Uh, first of all, it's very common to pick a vice president who attacked you. Sure, uh, of course, yeah, yeah. You know, George H.W. Bush said of Ronald Reagan, your plan is voodoo economics. Lyndon Johnson said of John F. Kennedy, you're not ready. Yeah, so it's ready. common. Okay. So there's, there's no, there's no uh, issue with that. Now, I'm gonna have to give you a bigger answer. Okay. You know, I have a prediction system. Yes. The keys to the White House. And the fundamental insight behind that 
prediction system is that American presidential elections are basically votes up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. In other words, do you guys deserve four more years or not? And there's very little the challenger has to do with it. And the way my system works is if six or more of the 13 keys go against the party holding the White House, they lose. These are big picture things. Sure. Midterm elections, third parties, long and short term economy, scandals, social unrest, policy change, foreign policy successes and failures. And in 2016, I predicted that Donald Trump would win because the incumbent Democrats had exactly six keys against him. It was the toughest call I ever had to make. And you can imagine, did not make me very popular yeah. in 90% yeah. plus Democratic Washington. Yeah. In my study, right over my shoulder there, I have a note written on the Washington Post in September, where I made my call, and it says, Professor, congrats, good call, and in big Sharpie letters, Donald J. <laughs> the problem, though, is he recognized my prediction, but he did not understand the insight behind the prediction, which is that it's governing, not campaigning that counts. Mm. And when you are the incumbent president, you are going to be judged by your record, not by what you say. So he can't revert to his 2016 strategy because he was the challenger there. It. And it didn't matter what he said. That's why even the access Hollywood take did not doom him. Wow. I always wondered that because I'm like, when you say grab by the pussy and it's audio and the other guy got fired, and you, nothing happened. Like when he was running, I couldn't believe what we were watching. I was blown away. Like there's no, at first when he came out, I was like, this guy's a joke. There's no way Donald Trump is going to be the, here we are four years later and he's the president. So, so what you're saying is what he did in his past, not his past, like in his past as a president in the last three or four years will determine whether he's going to win or not. And I talked to two uh, uh, historical politician, not politicians, political historians, uh, Anthony Davies, and um, who's an economist, and um, James Harrigan, who's a political historian. And he was telling me that the numbers are in favor of Biden and, and all this stuff, and that like no other president, I think besides like in World War II, has made a second term when the economy is in such like turmoil and stuff like that. So that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, there's no way he's going to dig himself out of it. But now thinking of like your keys and how your process works, that makes actual total sense that like and not limited to the economy you know if we exactly if we yeah by the economy alone clinton should have won going away sure the economy was quite good in two that you know there was no recession no nowhere near yeah 16 was fine it wasn't like 1932 or sure something. yeah 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 so, 92 tell me about your your like the key tell me the process like it doesn't have to be long-winded but like tell me the process of how you determine because you've been right ever since what 1981 I made my first prediction in April 1982 of Ronald Reagan re-election during what was then the worst recession since the Great Depression. So I've been right since then. We can talk a little bit about a hiccup in 2000 where you had that basically a stolen election. Florida. Florida. Yeah, stolen. I know, I know. So, yeah. you know that, but, you know, I think I was right. But, you know, yes, I've been right basically <laughs> So how does it work? How do you like, how did you come up with this? I know you worked yeah, with this, yeah. this seismic. You know, I'd love guy. to tell you I came up with it because I'm so brilliant and foresightful. But if I were to tell you that, Corey, to quote 
the late, not so great Richard Nixon, that would be wrong. <laughs> Remember I told you I was a visiting distinguished scholar yes. in 1981 where I was the quiz show chap. Well, mm -hmm. I also met this guy whose name was Vladimir Kailas Borak from Moscow, the world's leading authority on earthquake <laughs> prediction. And he said to me, we are going to collaborate. And again, being so incredibly insightful, my answer was, no, we're not. Earthquakes may be a big deal here in Southern California. I have to go back to American University in Washington, D.C. Nobody we don't cares. don't have those. Yeah, we don't have those right? here. <laughs> yeah. He says, oh, I don't want to collaborate on earthquakes. I already solved that. Yeah, right. He said, get this. This is incredible. He said in 1963, he was a member of the Soviet scientific delegation that came to Washington, D.C. under President Kennedy and negotiated the most important treaty in the history of the world, what? the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. He was there? Us, he was there. That kept us from poison. He's since passed away. He was yeah. much older than me. That kept us from poisoning the atmosphere, the oceans, and the grasses, the reason young people like you are still here. And he said, I fell in love with politics in Washington. And I always wanted to use the methods of earthquake prediction to predict elections. But look, I live in the Soviet Union. Elections? <laughs> <laughs> it's the supreme leader. Yeah. Off with your head. No. You know all about American politics and the most important elections, American presidential elections. Yeah. So we became the odd couple, as you can imagine, sure. of political research. And the key was to reconceptualize presidential elections in geophysical terms. Remember, this is 1981, not as Carter versus Reagan, not as Republican versus Democrat, not as liberal versus conservative, but as stability, sure. the party holding the White House keeps it, and earthquake, the party holding the White House has turned out. Hmm. And using that model, we looked at every American presidential election from 1860, the horse and buggy days when Lincoln was elected, to 1980, guided by my insight that elections were basically votes up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. And that research led us to discover these 13 key factors and our decision rule of six negative factors and the White House party loses. That's how it all started. That's crazy. And you've been, you've been aside from Florida, but like that, that's so interesting to me that you guys, why did you want, why did he want to come up with something like that to kind of predict and kind of like know in advance? Yeah, he wanted a bigger stage for his prediction methods. He wanted something spectacular and he got it. You yeah. know, we became very well known. And I think I alluded to this, but I'll tell you the full story. After I published that article, in April 1982, using the system we developed, mm -hmm. I get this call from a man with a deep Southern accent. And he says, Professor Lickman, this is Lee Atwater calling, political director of the Ronald Reagan White House. We want you to come to the White House. And I said, well, I'm not sure you got the right guy. Yeah. <laughs> he says, no, we know who you are. So I go to the White House mm -hmm. and I meet everybody, you know, the vice president, attorney general, chat with Lee, the very end of the day, he didn't invite me there to have me meet anyone. The very end of the day, he looks me in the eye and discloses the real reason he brought me there. 
says, wow. Professor Lickman, what would happen if Ronald Reagan didn't run again in 1984? Perfectly reasonable question, right? Mm-hmm. For a guy in the 70s. And I said, I'm going to tell it to you straight. You read my article. You're down three keys. Sure predicted win. Take six keys to count you out. But look what happens if Reagan doesn't run again. You obviously lose the incumbency key. Mm-hmm. You lose the internal party contest key because Bush and Kemp and Robertson are going to fight like crazy. Yeah, That's five. And then without the Gipper, you lose the charisma key. Yeah, you know, George Bush, charismatic. It's about as exciting as a, yeah. mistake, a, a shopping wet center. blanket. Yeah. So Mr. Outwater, you go from a sure win with three keys down to a predicted loss with six keys down. Outwater looks me in the eye and says, thank you so much, Professor Lichtman. And the rest is history. Wow. And That's Lee and I became friends, even though we're complete opposites different ends of the political spectrum. Uh, and I mentioned in his fascination with the keys in his biography called Bad Boy. And you may know he died tragically very young and recanted all of his dirty tricks on his deathbed. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's so cool. That's cool that, 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 but that's interesting that someone on that side had the kind of like foresight to see and ask you someone who has kind of got it down to a science and who has been, you know, who obviously in the future has been right every year. That's so interesting that they would reach out to you. Before I even had been right. And that's one of the great things, you know, if you're going to be a successful in politics is to recognize what you don't know. Right. And in turn to, to help you know it. Right. That's something, you know, Donald Trump has never learned. He thinks he knows everything. Of course. Himself. Knows yeah. more about war than the generals, you know, more about technology than the scientists. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of points that I'm like, it's, oh my God, it's like a reality show. It's so freaking crazy. But yeah. do, do you think, so obviously your, your wife is, a, is an activist. You're an activist, no? No, I'm not involved. In, I was, but I haven't been involved in politics for 15 years. I stay out of it. Yeah. Because of my expert witness work, and I want to keep politics out of my predictions. Look, here's the secret to forecasting. The hardest thing in being a successful forecaster is not knowing history, although you've got no history. It's not knowing math, or you got no math. It's not knowing politics, although you've got no politics. It's keeping your personal political preferences out of it. If I just voted by political preferences, I'd be useless as a forecaster. Sure. I'd be wrong half the time. But going into 2020, I've called four Republicans and five Democrats. That mathematically is as close to equality as you can get. And I always tell people, these are predictions, not endorsements. Sure. No, that makes people sense. People are understanding that, but I yeah. tell them. That. Yeah, yeah, that's really what it is. But whether they take it, it's up to them. Do you think that the... Because um, the conversation I had before with one of my other guests was, I was confused of why the the democratic party also for one let let bernie just kind of walk again but also why they didn't pick i feel like a very very strong candidate either in tulsi gabbard or andrew yang or somebody that was new that wasn't you know hasn't been in politics for 40 50 years that was new blood and you know fit all checked all the boxes like a tulsi gabbard she's a woman she's a woman of color she's a veteran she's a politician she's all these great things but i don't know i just thought it was odd that they went with biden Safety. 
They See, went with what they thought was the sure thing. Sure. Biden. They didn't want to take a chance. They thought, you know, they had a good chance to win. And rightly or wrongly, and I'm not sure it was right, but their belief was go with the safe choice. So two of the biggest names, basically, and we'll just swing, we'll swing for the fences. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think Kamala was a great pick, not because I think she's going to swing the election, but for two reasons. One, you know, the guy's 77. You got to think, unfortunately, you know, about the possibility of the vice president becoming president. Yeah. And she's qualified, having been attorney general of the biggest state in the union, a senator, very smart. And then the other thing, as a multiracial woman, she's the future of the country. Look, the Republican base is old white guys like me. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't manufacture more old white guys. You can't make us live to be 150. We're moving towards a multiracial society. And I mean, a majority minority society. And, you know, Pence and Trump are not the future. Kamala is the future. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. Do you think that um, aside from like the uh, the politics part of it, with everything that's going on, like the injustice and, and and all this, like, do you think it's been like a really really hard? Is it harder to live nowadays than it was? Do you think back in the day, as far as like the racial injustice, where like cops, you know, blue lives matter, black lives matter, all these these like big slogans that are really popular on one side or the other? Things were vastly worse than this in the Jim Crow era. Oh yeah, in the Jim Crow era, no one even noticed you know, the brutality directed against black people. And not just, you know, o overt, you know, murders and violence, but keeping blacks in inferior segregated schools, keeping them out of good jobs, keeping them entirely out of the justice system, uh, the, you know, having separate uh, facilities and accommodations for blacks sure. and whites. So, you know, we tend to, oh, things were so wonderful in the 50s. Yeah, if you were a rich white guy like Donald Trump's dad, they were. Yeah. But they weren't so wonderful for ordinary ordinary folk. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, because I hear a lot of people say, oh, this is the worst time to live. I'm like, this is, I feel like this not is the close. best time to be alive. Not, <laughs> yeah, not with, close. with medical stuff and just technology. It's just like, how could it be? You know, we have a lot of things to work on, obviously. but Of course we do. And we always do. But, you know, go back to the turn of the century. You know, today lifespan is 25 years more. Greater. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, 77, I think it is. Well, um, what was I going to ask you? Well, we let's, be winding down, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the, your pick. Give me your, give me your kind of, uh, what is your, I'll put the link to the video also in the description too, so people can check out your video yeah. on for New York Times. But I personally think Trump's going to win, especially after picking Kamala Harris as the vice president. Um, just because I gave him ammo. And then I know Biden agreed to three national debates. I thought the more, the less Biden talked, the better he would have been off, I think. But Hillary Clinton won all three debates by every poll and still lost the election. So let me tell you how I look at it, which sure. is totally different from looking at who's up, who's down, looking at the individual candidates. Again, the insight behind my system is that elections are won or lost by governing by the party holding the White House and the challenger doesn't matter. Sure. So in late 2019, Donald Trump was looking pretty good. Remember on my system, it takes six keys to count out the party holding the White House. He was down four. Oh. And then as you know, of course, America gets hit with the COVID and with the cries for social and racial justice. And here's where Trump's misunderstanding of my keys comes in. 
instead of dealing with these issues substantively, he thought he could revert to his 2016 playbook and talk his way out of it. Didn't work. The result is he's lost three additional keys. Wow. The short economy key, because we're in a recession. Mm -hmm. The long-term economy key, which is based on uh, economic growth and the social unrest key because of what's raging across the land. So Donald Trump goes from four keys down, two keys short of, of a predicted defeat, to seven keys down, one key more than needed to predict his defeat. So my final prediction is Donald Trump becomes the first sitting president since Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush in 1992 to lose a reelection bid. And significantly, never, has the White House party suffered such a sudden and dramatic reversal of fortune in just a matter of a few months. And if Trump had listened to the keys, he might have saved himself. Yeah, I think that's what the part is, is the fact that, that this, your prediction of the switch has only happened in like three to five months span. It it's wasn't- Never say anything like it. To yeah. lose three keys in you know, five months, it's just amazing. Yeah, no, that is cr okay. Cool. So you got you got Biden winning in a landslide, I guess. Yes, um, Trump losing and ipso facto Biden winning. Okay. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, is I, there I any like to put it. I'm not just being pedantic. I like to, because people often misunderstand this. The sure. focus of my keys is always on the party holding the White House. That makes total sense, though. I mean, yeah. the fact that, I mean, and those are three big keys that he lost, the social injustice, the long-term and short-term economy. Big, those are big, big major, stuff. major stuff. They don't turn around on a dime, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then, to, what, November's in two months. So it's like, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's hard. They're not turn around. No. So is there any books that you, guys, that you want to plug? You want to talk about anything and anything that yeah. you do? We talked about my repeal the Second Amendment, the case for a stay for America. And just uh, a few weeks ago, the seventh edition of my Keys book has come out. Pretty good to get it. Editions. It's called Predicting the Next President, the Keys to the White House 2020, by, uh, published by Roman and Littlefield, available at bookstores and on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Roman and Littlefield. All right, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to get that book. I'm going to get the second amendment one too, because I'm kind of interested in what you, what you think, but I really appreciate you coming on, man, and taking the time to talk to me about this kind of stuff. Cause you're super smart. You've been around for a while and you've, you've done it your whole career. So I, I really appreciate that. I'll leave you with one final thought. Yes. 73. I've been doing this, as you know, for about 40 years mm -hmm. and I still get butterflies in my stomach <laughs> every time I do it. It's not an easy thing. And I'm one of the very few people who's been doing this for 40s. Maybe the only one. Yeah. Maybe a, a few others, but very few. Putting yourself on the line every four years and knowing how you're going to get hit. Yeah. If you, other thing I want to just raise for you is outside the keys or any prediction system, there are a couple of other things that give me butterflies. One is voter suppression. Are we going to have a free and fair election? Are we going to screw up the post office, which seems pretty badly screwed up already? Right. Yeah. And then Russian intervention. You know, they've had four years to do it even better. And we know, and just I refer everyone to the incredible bipartisan report of the Senate Intelligence Committee, committee controlled by Republicans, which is vastly better than that lame Mueller report, documenting what really happened in 2016. So we know. <laughs> Donald Trump will again welcome 
and exploit any Russian intervention. So those two things uh, give me butterflies and keep me up at night. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, I'm going to look into that. I didn't know about the other report. I only knew about the Mueller report. It's way better than the Mueller report. What's it called? I don't want to go off on the Mueller report. But no, no, you're good. It's one of the biggest disappointments of my lifetime, I have to say. What's the other report called? It's the report of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Just oh. came out a week or two ago. Oh, okay. That's on, on Russian intervention in 2016. Right. I'm going to check it, that out. It cool. called Paul Manafort a grave counterintelligence threat. Grave <laughs> counterintelligence intelligence threat. It didn't pull punches like the Mueller report did. Yeah, so the Mueller report was kind of like, eh, fugazi. Yeah, I feel like. Exactly. Who's going to read this? Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> All right, gotta cool. run. All right, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye, thanks, Alan. Boy.